you would remain standing and open your Bibles to John chapter 10. We're continuing our study of John's gospel this morning. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22, we'll read the rest of the chapter. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. He called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world? You are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again, across the Jordan, to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word. Lord, these truths are too great for us. And as we just heard Jesus, you proclaim, unless we hear your voice, we will not believe. We will not come. So let us hear this morning the voice of the good shepherd. By your spirit, would you open, illumine our hearts to the, these great truths, shape us, mold us more and more into your image, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So for two weeks in a row, I'm going to start off with um, something about my dad. I did it last week. And if you want proof of his whistle, you can just ask him after worship, but it has to be outside. Because if it's inside, it'll hurt your ears. 
And you might want to plug your ears, but you can ask him to do the whistle. I did yesterday, and he can still do it. When I was young, I loved to go swimming, and I, it was often my mother would take us, and, or my grandmother would drop us off at the pool. But I always loved it when, when my dad was there. It was great. Because he would do this thing, right? Where you, you, you know this. Like if, you, if you're a kid out there, you know what I mean. So you're on the side of the pool, you're just learning the, the water, and the dad is in the water. I know this also, I've done it with my own kids, but you, you probably have done this before too. The, the parent is in the pool saying, jump. Right, jump to me. I'll catch you. I'm not gonna let you drown. Sometimes that's terrifying, right? You know the water is dangerous. You've been told that your whole life. And yet here is a parent telling you with arms outstretched, jump. And then the negotiations begin at that point. Like, you, like any good negotiation, you have to negotiate the terms, right? You're too far away. Come closer. Right? You remember these negotiations? Maybe you've been on either side of the equation, but you, you know what I'm talking about. Come closer. Come on, no, I, you know, I'll catch you. you. You're being coaxed to jump in, but then finally you just, you just leap into their arms. It's great. And if we're here with a pulse this morning, that means whoever did that with us didn't let us drown, right? We're in good shape. The fundamental question being asked by the child, if you've ever been in this situation, is can I trust you? Will you hold me? Are you just going to pretend? Now when the boys got a little older and they could swim, of course I would pretend, jump to me, and then I would back up real quick, and they would jump in and then have to swim to me. But the, the real question is, can you be trusted? Are you going to catch me when I jump in the water? You're just going to let me flounder, let me drown. You're going to let something bad happen to me right now. I think in, in all of our hearts, there's something like this at work when it comes to Christ and his gospel. Not the surety of him, but our assurance of him. Or like that scared kid on the side of the pool. Wondering about salvation. Wondering about assurance. We need assurances that when we leap, Dad is going to catch me. Some of these feelings about assurance, they can look a ton of different ways. Look, it could be any thousand different things, even in this room this morning. But some of them generally, it could be rooted in sin. One reason that you're untrusting is there's just sin that's holding you here, sticking you here. If I continue sinning like this, can I be sure he's going to catch me? Some of it, some of this lack of assurance could be rooted in shame. We tend to make God like us, right? We tend to, to make him, we tend to fashion him like us. And if God knows our past, either something that has happened to me or something that I did in my past that I feel shame over, that I'm going to lack assurance that he actually loves me. 
that he actually cares. It could be that we have experienced abandonment. We've had people leave, run away, draw back. They said they would be there, and then one day they're not there. Is Jesus going to abandon me like my friends, family in the past? Maybe we lack assurance because we see that others know more about this Christian life than we do. You know, there's a super Christian over there. He's got a TV program and everything. He knows a lot of stuff. That guy's written so many books. I bet, he, I bet he's got it all together. And I don't know as much as him. And so I'm not as, as assured of the Lord's grace and kindness to me as, as he must be or she must be. I'm not as far along as I want to be as a Christian. Is God good? Can he be trusted? Maybe we lack assurance for the simple reason that we're not believing the gospel day in and day out, piping it into our lives through the word of God, sitting under the preaching and teaching of it. There's so many reasons that, that we could think about this assurance and reality that we're going to be caught by him, that he loves us enough to do that. So many reasons. Our text today, Jesus deals very openly and honestly with his opponents about who he is. And in doing that, in, in interacting with his opponents about the nature of who he is, he says some of the most astounding things to us about assurance. About our security in him. The text today reminds us that our security does not rest in us. Listen, if you tune out and don't hear anything else I say, this text is about this reality. Our assurance as the people of God, the flock of God, does not rest in us. It rests in Him. Just like that kid on the side of the pool, it's, the assurance is not how well they can swim because they can't. The assurance is in the one holding them when they jump. Can Jesus be trusted? Can he be trusted? In clear terms today, Jesus will again claim to be the Messiah, the one who is with the Father, the one who is himself God, and that's how we'll approach the text today. One, Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and two, Jesus is himself God. So as the text opens, there's some time that has passed, right? We, we, last time we saw, he was at the Feast of Booths along with the Festival of Lights. And here, John opens with a, a different feast. We're told the setting is the Feast of Dedication. Today we call that Hanukkah. It's known as the, the Festival of Lights because it's a real happy celebration. All of Israel, and, and really Israel spread abroad even to this day, the diaspora, still light lights in their homes to celebrate the Feast of Dedication. This is different than any of the other feasts that John has talked about. He's kind of organized Jesus' life and ministry around these feasts of Israel, showing how Jesus is the, the central figure of all their feasts. But here he's pointing to this feast that is not in the Old Testament. 
This took place in the intertestamental periods between the, the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament 400 years. That's when these events took place. Um, 167 AD, a Syrian leader named Antiochus Epiphanes overtook Jerusalem. It wasn't good. He defiled the, the temple. Some notes from this period even say he slaughtered pigs on the altar in the temple and cooked them there. It was, a, it was a horrible scene. A, a, a powerful thumb on the seat of power for Israel in Jerusalem. A few years later, 164, a man named Judas Maccabeus, also known, his, his kind of popular name is Judas the Hammer. He started with a small group of people and they perfected um, elements of guerrilla warfare. And sure enough, they, they overthrew the Syrian invaders and restored. They, they had this feast because he had done so much evil in the temple. They had a feast of rededication and eight days of celebration. In this setting, Jesus so this feast is going on, and this is on everyone's mind, and Jesus is in the temple, again, teaching. And then we note that it's winter. Why would he point out it's winter? Why would he point out all these things? Because he's wanting us to see and learn about Jesus here. The people were being harassed. The temple should have been used to worship and glorify God, but it wasn't. And what it needed was a new leader to come along and set it right again. John is telling us from the very beginning, this is who you're looking for. Things aren't right, and this Jesus is the one that you need. Spiritually, it is, it is winter. It is cold. It is distant. Even in this introduction, just, just that alone, John is pointing to Jesus and saying, he's the Messiah. He's the one you need. Things are wrong. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And you need another king to come in and conquer and rule. Look at verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. This term gathered around is really interesting because it means to encircle, besiege, surround. It is not a kind word. It's not like they're sitting mildly by and listening to his teaching. No, they're coming at him, badgering him, surrounding him. And they're saying, tell us plainly if you're the Christ. So we know from this term, they are not looking for this friendly dialogue. They are looking to entrap him. Tell us plainly, Jesus. Just out yourself. And look at what he says in 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. He answers very clearly. I told you, and you do not believe. 
Listen, this is a very important lesson for us. The issue is not the content of Jesus' teaching and preaching. That is not the issue. He is the truth incarnate. The issue is not his teaching. The issue is the hard hearts of the listener. So important. The issue most people have with the gospel, the issue most people have with the the word of God, the issue is not the clarity of the teaching or the lack of clarity. That's not the issue. The issue is one of belief or unbelief. The issue has to do with our hearts, not the content. You know, you can have this smokescreen all you want about it's just hard to believe or hard to understand or whatever. He's spoken. He says, I've spoken plainly just reading back through this gospel and just ticking marks as he reveals himself in various layers of clarity. At least 25 times already, Jesus has privately and publicly in front of thousands professed to be sent from the father to the earth to save time and time again. The son of man language. Here he is. He is is among us. The great I am. It it is. There's no way you you can't look at his teaching and say you haven't told us. Tell us plainly. He already has. And that's just from the beginning of the gospel to to this moment. But not only that, he, he then points to his works, both in word and deed. Jesus has made himself known and it is plain. course we know the signs that Jesus has done so far water to wine healing the lame sight to the blind feeding of the 5,000 but add the other miracles from the other gospels as well and consider all they've seen up till this point three years of public ministry the the very last line of John's gospel says this, and we'll, we'll have a great time with it when we get there. Now there are many, also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. He has done a lot. See, that they don't, they don't come to Jesus asking about his being plain or whatever, make it plain. He's already done that in word and deed time and time and time again. They're coming at him to entrap him. They want to charge him with blasphemy. Jesus goes on to tell them that the reason they don't believe is because they don't belong to him. Why aren't they believing? He says, because, because you're not mine. I haven't called you. They aren't his sheep. Jesus is building on the the teaching that we heard last week. He is the shepherd. He calls with his voice and his sheep hear his voice and they come and he's saying to them, you're not that. In the midst of this assault of unbelief, Jesus, surrounded by those who want to ensnare him, He offers, again, incredible assurance to his flock. Listen to what he says. Being encircled by these enemies, he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Three things 
to focus on here. First, notice how assurance begins. You have to listen closely. It begins right here. The effectual call of Christ. Hearing his voice. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. This call of Christ to us is the call to come, to believe. This is how it begins. It doesn't begin with our voice. It doesn't begin with our response. It begins with his call. That's where assurance begins. The sheep hear the voice and they follow. What does it mean that they follow? When they hear him, they believe him. It means they receive the voice of Christ as belonging to Christ, as God himself. If you are here today and you are a believer, it is because you have heard the voice of Christ. Second, not just where assurance begins, but the content of assurance Jesus gives us right here. He says, I give them eternal life. Again, it is about what Jesus is doing. First, we hear his voice calling. Second, he is the one giving eternal life. We are assured of forever life. When you hear eternal life, do you just hear a churchy word? Like if you really were to go home and reflect on eternal life, and it's just framed in this churchy kind of way, You might think, man, that could be incredibly boring. Eternal life? With myself and my broken thoughts? That's that's not what the Bible means when it says eternal life. The, The content and substance of eternal life in Scripture is this. Life forever with God. The way that you're supposed to be. Utterly redeemed. Utterly made new. Life the way it's supposed to be. Life fully in the kingdom of God with him. No more cancer. No more tears. No more death. No more violence, no more hunger, no more pain forever. The way it's it's meant to be. Life the way it's intended to be by God forever with him in his presence. So don't don't define this as like this this churchy word that doesn't have true meaning. Look, we we could just talk about that for the rest of our time together. Eternal life is life with Christ. They will never perish. That is, they will never be destroyed. Listen, that life will will not end. In Christ, if, if he tarries, your mortal body will die, but you will not. You will live with him in glory. Third, so he doesn't just provide the beginning and starting point of assurance comes from him. The grounds of it, what it is, belongs to him. Lastly, notice how this, where this comes from. Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then he doubles down and says, they won't snatch them out of my father's hand either. Again, we have to make this point. 
Assurance does not come from looking inside. If the place that you start to look for assurance of who you are with God is yourself, you're you're never going to have it. You're never going to have assurance that way. Because you will never find yourself to be enough. You will always be wondering. Assurance is not grounded in ourselves at all. Assurance comes from this reality right here. No one will snatch them out of my hand or my Father's hand. Jesus is holding us. In his hands, we're also in the hands of his Father. Listen, wherever, whenever we look to ourselves to find assurance of who we are in this world, to who we are before a, a true and living God, if we look to ourselves, we will, we will never, ever find it. It's only when we look here, we look to Christ, and we find eternal hope that, that Paul talks about. He writes about this. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he what? Glorified. He starts it and he finishes it. This whole thing of assurance is God's work in us. This is important because, as we said before, we all go through times where we lack assurance. We simply do. Confession... Our confession of faith speaks of this very boldly, very openly. It talks about some of the same reasons I mentioned earlier. Listen, the people of God have always wrestled somewhere on this continuum. And and what we're told in this text right now is one of the reasons why is we look to ourselves instead of him. Verse 30 links these two texts. The first one, he is the Messiah. We are in his hands. He is the shepherd calling us the the sheep. And then boom, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Jesus is not only the Messiah, he is himself God. Notice that Jesus doesn't say that Jesus and God are the same person, that they are the same person. Clearly that is... They are one in substance and three in person. He, he is not confusing his identity here. Jesus prays to the Father. Jesus submits to the Father. Jesus is commissioned by the Father. Jesus is obedient to the Father. Time and time again, already in John's Gospel, he tells us, I see my Father working and I am working. This is what the Trinity does. This is what it looks like. One substance, three persons. Today we'll quote the language of the Nicene Creed, which does that very thing. Jesus is rooting, listen, he's rooting our assurance in the Trinity. Before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in the Father. Everything that the Father ordained for redemption has been accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Salvation is applied then to believers, communicated to believers by the power of the Holy Spirit. Salvation, all of it, is Trinitarian. The reality that Jesus is God, one substance with the Father, and the Spirit should not be a cold or distant reality, but one that makes us more secure. He says, we are holding you. Because Jesus is divine, we can look at Christ and there see the character and works of God himself. Alexander McLaren says this, listen, quote, His revelation is no mere revelation in words. Plenty of men have talked about God and said noble and true and blessed things about him. It is one thing to speak about God in words, maxims, precepts. It is another thing to show us God in act and life. The one is the work of man, the other is the exclusive prerogative of God manifested in the flesh, end quote. Listen, we can say lots of things about God and lots of things about Christ, and that's good and right and well, but he said Jesus is unique. When he speaks, you are listening to God himself. Because Jesus is divine, we can rest in grace. We know that our sin is atoned for. If he is not God, we are still in our sins. Because Jesus is divine, we can fully trust him when he says that he gives us eternal life and will keep us from destruction. Who else can make that kind of promise to you? I cannot. If it is my word or your best friend's word or even your mom's word, you will die in your sins. He he alone, and because he is divine, he can say these things. Because Jesus is divine, we can rest assured in his word and sacrament today. This isn't a cold and distant doctrine. We can trust the ordinary means today. We worship because Jesus is divine. Jesus and the Father are one. The Jews get it too. They're like, there's the admission right there. And they pick up stones to stone him. Notice again the contrast that that John, he does this all the time. He, He just dropped tremendous truth on them. I and the Father are one. And then what is the reaction? Kill him. Kill him. Listen, all those blessed things that we just talked about are true only because of that reality and their reaction is kill him. It's time for him to die. Jesus, the son of God, the son of man, the agent of creation, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And they are wanting to stone him to death. Again, we've seen this in chapter five. We've seen this in in chapter eight. They they. Jesus, again, similarly, claims to be deity, and they want to kill him. And Jesus here pushes back. Pushes back. I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? He's implying this, that the works are proof. Even if you don't believe the words that are coming out of my mouth, he says, look at my works. Put me to the test by the works. Here's another important point about unbelief. It doesn't matter how much good is done in the face of it. It doesn't matter. 
It does not matter. Just like a hardened heart can, can hear all the truth and still say no and walk away in unbelief, you can see incredible amounts of good again and again and again and still not get it. You know, looking on this side, looking with, with eyes that are open and scales that are off our eyes, we look at the works of Jesus and say, how can you interpret him any other way? And yet they saw the exact same works and they wanted to kill him. Listen, the same thing goes on with you and I and unbelievers around us that we love and we want to come to Christ. We continue doing good. We continue speaking truth. We continue praying. We continue speaking the gospel very clearly to them. But here's a key point. We aren't enough to save them. Unless they hear the voice of the good shepherd, they will not come. Notice their answer in 33, the Jews answered, uh, it is not for a, a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself to be God. Again, Jesus does something very important right here. Very interesting. So they're accusing him of blasphemy, a charge that would be rooted in the law, and he takes them to their own law. He takes them to our psalm that we read earlier, specifically verse 6 of Psalm 82. He takes them to their scripture. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you were gods? Very interesting. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? So the Jews make it about their law, and Jesus says, okay, it is about your law. Let's see if I'm blaspheming or not. Your own law calls those who are not God, gods. If you look at Psalm 82, it's a, it's a psalm of contrast. It's contrasting God as the sovereign, right, and good judge of the whole world with earthly judges. And they are receiving God's word and judging it accordingly. The text calls them their gods, lowercase g. They have authority that comes from God, and they are to be warned. In fact, it's not looking really good for them. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Here's how the argument goes that Jesus is making. Premise one, God calls other beings, even humans, other than himself, gods, lowercase g. Premise two, the scripture cannot be broken, so everything that it says is true. And premise three, God consecrated Jesus and him alone. He is not blaspheming when he claims to be God. He's telling the truth. And listen to the point um, more clearly made. If the word of God calls these fallen Human justices, gods, how much more Christ, the very Son of God, the Son of Man, sent, deployed by the Father, sent into the world for redemption, how much greater claim does he have to the title God? And he continues to build. He goes on in 37 through 39. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, Jesus is pointing to his works and he's saying in the works you learn about God. 
When you see Jesus doing something, you, you learn something of the character of God himself. Jesus does all these things to communicate what the Father is like to the world. Let's hear him carefully. He's still talking to us, little lambs. If we can admit we're lambs and admit we're sheep before this great shepherd. Jesus is saying this, your source of safety, your source of life and hope in the world is not in you. You are safe, you have hope, you are loved, you have truth in Christ himself, who is in God and God is in him. The resounding application of this is belief. It's faith. That sounds easy, but it's a, it's a narrow way. To accept Jesus' words and works is to say something fundamental about ourselves, and it is this. He is God and we are not. He is right and I am wrong. He is gracious and I am sinful. Listen, and the reality is you can't, you can't muster enough to get this. Not enough money, status, power to be secure. You cannot get security in those ways. We need assurance that comes from God himself. We need to also look at all the signs and say, my word, look, look at how great God is. Changing the water to wine, you see a celebration, a foretaste of an eternal, glorious feast with God in heaven. Just a tiny inbreaking. He's saying all his works reveal the Father. They all do. Healing the official son, you see God's heart and compassion for a sin-sick world. Are you sick? Look to him. Healing the lame man, when this man springs up, you see God's heart for a world frozen, paralyzed by sin and death. When he heals the man born blind, the clarity of this man's sight, we see the heart of God who came to heal our blindness. Feeding the multitude when the bread and the fish continue to, to be broken. Feeding thousands, you see his compassion for the hungry. Again and again and again, his signs point to the love of the Father for us. Like so many other passages in John's gospel, we're meant to ask the question, who's going to get it? Who's going to get this? Who's going to hear? Who's going to believe? And you see deep in the heart of the center of Jerusalem there under this well-trodden path under Solomon's portico, he, he's telling these people this and they want to stone him and they want to kill him. And then it, it, the, the text at the very end transitions. They go way outside the city, miles and miles across the Jordan where John was before and there people get it. And I think embedded in that is a, one last lesson, and that's this. It's often the people who think they get it. It's the spiritual insiders who, who do not need Jesus. 
And it's the outsiders, it's the one who know that they're in need who actually get it. That's where we see belief. That's where we see people saying, yes, I'm, I'm a sheep, I need you. And they believe. Listen, I think, to, again, to some degree or another, every single one of us in our Christian lives will struggle with assurance. Will you hear Jesus today saying that he's got you? Just like a kid ready to jump, saying, come on, I'm going to hold you. And not just me, but the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that we are in your arms. Thank you that we don't just belong to you, but Father, Son, and Spirit, we are yours. Thank you for this great grace. Would you assure us today in light of who you are? Draw the attention of our heart and eyes and minds away from ourselves. Draw them to you. And there may we find life eternal and hope and all that comes with it. Again, these things are too much for us. Unless we hear your voice, we will not follow. Help us, Lord. Pray in Christ's name, amen.